So I like to think of myself as a storyteller, and I like to say things that sound like this. Once upon a time, long, long ago, in a faraway place, I might even add, it was a dark and stormy night. That's how many legends begin. But history is a series of, that has, an, all, has, has stories that have an altogether different feel about them. For instance, listen to this one. On September 11, 2001, at 9 a.m., it was a crisp September morning, and I was in a staff meeting with Clyde Affman and Aaron Bump at First Baptist Church in Fremont, Michigan, about an hour north of Grand Rapids. Jenny, the church secretary, interrupted the meeting with a call from my wife, Lois. The pitch of her voice was higher than usual. She said, you need to come home right now and watch television. Someone has flown a plane into the Twin Towers in New York. Now, obviously, I'm recounting a historic event. I'm not weaving a tale or a myth or a legend. So it is in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, in Luke in chapter 3, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. Notice that there are going to be eight names, six names of leaders. Uh, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went in the region around the Jordan and proclaimed the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The word of the Lord came to John. We met John, right? We were reading about John earlier about the announcement of Gabriel that John would be born, and there was an announcement of Gabriel to Mary that Jesus would be born, and then there was the birth of John and the song of Zechariah, and the birth of Jesus, and the song of the angels, and the song of Simeon, and the song of Anna. This is what we've been. Now we have fast forward the boyhood of Jesus, and now we fast forward years later, and John's been living in the wilderness, among people in the wilderness probably, and the word of the Lord comes to him. He's the last Old Testament prophet. And the idea here is just that this really happened in space and time history. We know this because of these names and dates and places that are listed. Luke isn't suggesting that this is some kind of a myth or some kind of a moral story or a story with an ethic or a story that could be true. Luke is saying this is exactly what happened. And that's going to get really interesting because the kinds of things that Luke is going to say happen are world-altering kinds of things like resurrections and so forth. And so the historical accuracy is confirmed of, of, of what you have here in chapter 3 is easily confirmed by sources outside the Bible. They don't need to be, but they are. And maybe you noticed my little video. How many of you watched my little video that I sent you? Did you watch that? A couple of you? Okay. Well, then this is what I said. So Licenius, old, old liberal scholars that doubted the specific accuracy of the Bible would say, why this Licinius of uh, Abilene, he's listed by Josephus, but he couldn't have lived at this time because he lived earlier. And then in modern times, in about 18 miles from Damascus in Syria, they found a coin that had Abilene and Licinius' name on it. And in other words, and this happened, there are three different places in modern archaeological discoveries where they've discovered the name 
uh, that, that this has been confirmed. That this is one little example that when you, when you say Clyde Athman was there and Aaron Bump was there and Jenny Carter was there and it was this date and it was this time, you can go talk to Clyde. Well, you, you can't talk to Clyde because he's with the Lord. But someday you could check with him. You could talk with Jenny Carter. You could look her up on Facebook this afternoon and said, is what that man said true? And when was that? And you could verify the details. And this is one of the reasons why we have this. And John now is, has the word of the Lord comes to him, and then he begins in that region. He doesn't go to the main city, but he begins in that region among the people around, just preaching repentance, saying, repent and be baptized. Now, there was this baptism of repentance that John was calling people to. It, it was common for Jewish people to practice proselyte baptism when a Gentile wanted to become a Jew there would be the rite of baptism. It was not uncommon for people to practice, Jewish people to practice like personal ritual purification baptism. If you go to the Holy Land now, you see in the sites where these places are that you visit, there are Jewish ritual baths, mikvah ritual baths. And, and they're, not little, they're not little fonts. They, they're actually like pools that you have to walk down into. Hint, hint. Baptist preachers being annoying right now. We believe in baptism by immersion, and we think the other guys are wrong, but we love them. That's what I'm talking about. Anyway, in case you missed my subtle reference, I wanted to be really clear. Baptism, to, to, to be what, baptism is immersion. That's what, what the word means. But anyway, that's not my topic today. I'm just cheating and being irritating. Um, anyway, that was, there, was the, there was the Jewish Rick, uh, Mitch, uh, or Mitch, uh, Ritual baths, mikvah baths there. And, and th but what was interesting that what John was doing was he's speaking to a Jewish audience that consider themselves devout, and he's saying, you need to be baptized. And they're like, I'm not a Gentile. I'm the son of Abraham. What would I need to be? Uh, you're suggesting I need uh, purification? What are you saying? He's... Now, this is interesting. These details are included, and I'll get off this subject, but the, why, were, why were so many of these details of time and people included? I want to suggest four reasons. One, to emphasize that it's time and space history. This is so very important, to emphasize that it's time and space history. Christian, I've said this before, but I think it's important to say it again. Christianity isn't basically an ethic or a philosophy, even though it includes an ethic and it includes a philosophy. That's not what it basically is. And Christianity isn't basically a set of governing principles that you should follow. You know, they're included in Christianity. That's not what Christianity basically is at the core. And Christianity isn't really a, a following, a, a, um, a following an exemplary person, even though we certainly have exemplary persons in Christianity. Christianity is a truth claim about time and space history that God sent his son Jesus who lived a sinlessly perfect life and then was tried and tortured and crucified and rose again in space and time. And this is where Luke's story is going, I will tell you that. This is the main place where Luke's story is going. But he's beginning by establishing this as historic fact. So that's number one reason why Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would have included these details is so that we would know, oh, this isn't once upon a time, long ago in a faraway place, it was a dark and stormy night. This is historic facts. Second is to underscore the importance of what's about to happen. The way we start saying that, it was this day, these were the people that were there. 
gives you the feeling like, wow, something really important must have happened. And that's what Luke is doing. Third, is to contrast, I, I think this is clear, he's contrasting the temporary kingdoms of men with the eternal kingdom of God. So he has all these movers and shakers whose names we would not know really probably that much if they weren't included in the Bible. People wouldn't be reading them all the time, common people like us. Like they're only famous because they're associated with Jesus in this way. Otherwise, they really wouldn't be. They're, they're well known in history, but you wouldn't read about them that often. And so you have all these powerful, wealthy leaders, and then you have this honey-dipped, bug-eating mountain guy, which it doesn't really say that here, but if you read other places in the Bible about John the Baptist, you know, he lives in a wilderness and he has a funny diet, uh, locust and wild honey, um, and uh, he's a hairy guy, and so uh, he'd be quite the spectacle at the party. And here he comes in con- with a word from the Lord from the wilderness in contrast with all these movers and shakers and even religious leaders. Tracking with me? All right. Here's what Philip Ryken said. Everything we know about this impressive list of leaders testifies to their pride, to their vi- the hard names that Jan read today, their pride, their violence, their rebellion against God. Even the high priests of Israel were under pagan authority. And it was during this degenerate time that God once again spoke to his people. For centuries, he'd been silent. There had not been a true prophet in Israel for more than 400 years, but then the word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness. This is why the word, this is the way, I'm still quoting Philip Ryken, this is the way the word always comes in dark and dangerous times when people seem powerless against godless forces of evil. God's word comes to bring and says, the Lord is our salvation. So I think these details were there, one, to emphasize that it was history in time and space. Two, to underscore that it was important. Three, to contrast the way God's kingdom works with the way men's kingdoms work. And fourth, to display the providential work of God. In other words, God's flexing here and saying, look how I can take all these Willful people that work out my will through the things that they do. And this is all so that John says we want to prepare for a visitation from God. God is coming, and he's bringing with him what God brings. We want to prepare for this visitation. Make a highway for God, because he's going to come, and we want to prepare for this visitation. Zechariah's song in chapter 1 and verse 68 said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who he has visited us and redeemed his people. If you're right with God, you want this visitation. If you're not right with God, you want to delay this visitation. You know, if you say God's coming and you say, like if people say, this is on a different scale altogether, so don't misunderstand. People say the pastor's coming over, you're supposed to say, oh, great. Not, oh, no. Right? It's like, Jesus is coming back. Oh, Oh no, that's it, devout people. Jesus is coming back. When's it going to be? When's he going to be here? And I saw a bumper sticker once. I thought it was kind of funny. I probably shouldn't have laughed. It said, Jesus is coming, look busy. Yeah, I thought it was kind of funny too. But it's like, but it's not really funny because it won't matter if you look busy. Either right with God or you're not right with God. And Jesus' visitation is a good thing or it's not going to be a good thing. And so, John says, repent. 
Because Jesus is coming. There's going to be a visitation. And you ought to want a visitation. So let me suggest to you that as we study this, and as I studied it this week, it's just so, so rich. What I see in this is, is how to prepare for a visitation from God. How to welcome God to come into your life and do what only God can do in your life. That's pretty exciting when you think about it, isn't it? How would you like to welcome God, Hannah? How would you like to welcome, I'm sure you do, welcome God into that ministry and just see what God does? I mean, you got it all set down there, but then what if the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, you see that. Welcome God into your marriage. Welcome God into your family. Welcome God into his church. Welcome God into our town. Visit us. Do what only you can do, God. We, what would we do to welcome God? You have a pattern in this? I'll tell you ahead of time in case you fall asleep. Four, you wouldn't do that, would you? Fourth thing. I'll make loud noises up here. It might get difficult for you to fall asleep. Uh, number one is like, repent. Did you know I was going to say that? Repent. And it's, number two is, prove that your repentance is genuine. That's number two. This is going to be like straightforward. And the third thing is going to be focus on Jesus. And the fourth thing is going to be keep the end in mind. You're going to see those things. How do you prepare? As we work our way through this text, let me show you these four things. How, how to prepare for God to visit and do what only God can do. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, verse 4 says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. When Jesus shows up, you conform to him. He doesn't come and endorse what you're doing. He does what he does, and you join him in what he's doing. You admit your need for him, and that's how we should see the deliverance of God. Henry Blackaby, he's about to go be with the Lord right now. Henry Blackaby from up in Canada was a Baptist guy who wrote a curriculum called, I think it was called Experiencing God. And in the curriculum, Experiencing God, one of the things that he taught was don't do something and then ask God to bless it. Don't do something and ask God to endorse it. Go where God sent you and find out what God is already doing and get involved with what God is already doing. Dale Moody said that years ago. Find out what God is doing and get in the middle of that stream. This would require a, a, not a willfulness like, here's what I'm doing, God, and I want your blessing on it, but rather, God, what, where are you at work and what are you doing? And how can I serve? This is the idea then. John, one more last quote from Reich, and he said, John needed to say this because most people were looking for the wrong kind of Savior. In these days, many Israelites were praying for a Messiah, but they were thinking primarily in political terms. Good thing we don't still do that, amen? They wanted someone to deal with Caesar, Herod, Pilate, and the rest of the Roman rulers, but God wanted to address their spiritual condition, and he wanted them to deal with their sin. So he sent John to help them get ready, and this is what we always need, spiritual preparation of the heart. We may want God to do many things for us, but first things first, we need to repent. Stop thinking about sin the way we think about it, and think about it the way God thinks about it. That's repent. The way to get ready for what God wants to do in our lives is to turn away from sin. And so it says in verses 4 to 6, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. 
Every valley will be filled, every mountain and hill made low, and the crooked will become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. All flesh will see God's miraculous deliverance. Now, John mentions these words. They were from Isaiah 40 and about him. John comes to be God's bulldozer. John comes to make a way for Jesus. And he, and he does it by calling people to repent, to think the way God thinks about their sin, to repent of their sin. He's quoting Isaiah 40. This is important. It's in all four of the Gospels. So people may have been thinking, that's what we need, a national deliverance that they did not realizing that's not what God was about right then. And so people were coming in crowds, and they were perhaps thinking, okay, when does the revolution begin? Here, we heard there's a great leader. When do we, you know, when do we overthrow the Romans? When's the, when do the taxes go down? When do we no longer have to pay property tax? When do I get a chicken in my pot? Let's make Israel great again. I, Look forward to saying that all week long. I just want to say that in case you're all, you know, I love you. That doesn't mean you don't do dumb stuff sometimes, right? I love you, you brood of vipers, John says. You brood of vipers. Yeah, interesting. They're thinking, I have dreams. Maybe I could get God on my team. You ever think that way? You ever think that way? Raise your hand if you ever think that way. Everybody. Okay, you're coming to church, you got to tell the truth. It's part of the deal. You know, God is, God is watching you. Do you ever think, oh, if I could get God, I have an idea. And if I could get a sponsor from, you know, God, that would be great. Because he could do anything. And God would say, well, I love you, you know. And, may, and I might do that, but I did have a plan. You might want to think about that. You, you get it. This is repent. It's like, I was thinking this, but now I think this. I changed. Metanoia, the Greek word, and it's specifically about sin. I used to think this way, now I think the way God thinks. Repent. That's what he's saying. How do we get ready for, how do we make a way for God to do what God does? We start with repenting, changing the way we think, specifically about sin. And so the forerunner announces Christ through whom all flesh will see the salvation of God. Even Gentiles, thank the Lord. This is, and then there, right now, there's a little plot twist. So far, so good. I have a word from the Lord. Uh, you need to repent and be baptized and repent, and, and uh, you'll see the salvation of God. And the people are flocking to him. And what is his first words? He has this little, he tells a funny story first. He, he leads with a funny story. Did you notice it? Did you read that? Did you catch the funny story there? He didn't tell a funny story. He led with an arresting statistic. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He led with a personal anecdote. I was plowing the snow the other day, and then this, like, my wife and my kids. Nope. He said, <laughs> here the people are looking at me. He's like, you brood of vipers, you nest of snakes, who, flee, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, that's an opener. <laughs> that's an opener. You'd have to have some hoots, but open your message like that. These people had traveled probably a long way, 
because they'd heard about it. And for whatever reason, they were there. Some of them, I'm, I'm sure, very sincere. And some of them were there because they were sincerely seeking God. We see this later because when he says, you need to repent, they go, how? How, how can I repent? But some had a misplaced desire for deliverance, like we do, and some thought they would get personal gain, and some thought they would get help for their national or selfish cause. Maybe some of them thought he would help them with their marriage or with their wayward kids or with their money or maybe get a better job. Maybe a lot of people that were there like us, we're not really sure why we're here. We just know that we have this emptiness, this angst, this hunger, this thirst, this guilt, this inexplicable stirring in our soul that we really can't quite put our finger on it, and maybe this guy will tell us something that we've never heard before. Some, no doubt, were thinking, I have a deep longing in my soul for God, and I want to know him. I want to follow him. And I pray that's true about you. I pray you're here for that reason. So John, he says, he, he does say, he starts by saying, to them, when the crowds came to be baptized, you brood of vipers who warned you to free from, from the wrath to come. I think it's a little bit like him saying, so why did you come? I don't want to, you know, if you've ever come to me for counsel, you, there's something I'm thinking that I don't always say, but I want to say. And it's always like, why did you come here? And what do you want from me? You know, because you might come to me for counsel, and you might come to me for counsel because you're just all beat up and hurting, and you just want somebody to listen to you and care. I get that. Or you might come for counsel because you want somebody to confirm your bias. <laughs> I'm going to tell my wife what I said was right, and the pastor agrees with me. That might be that. That wouldn't be the highest motivation I've ever imagined. You might come because I just need somebody to tell me what to do. I don't know. I'm finding more and more in ministry, more often people come to you for empathy than they do for, like, wisdom. Just need somebody to love and listen to them. But it's a good idea to say, so why have you come? Like, you know, thanks for asking. I'm not sure I've thought that through really well. John's like, brood of vipers, who've warned you to flee from the wrath that come. What are you doing here? And, and a lot of them were like, that whole repent thing, I, I need to do that. I just need to know what, How? He's like, all right, let me be specific with you. And he got to start telling him exactly how to repent. I'll be getting, that. I'll be getting to that later. Um, so there you go. And John says this, he says this, and this is the second thing. He says, repent, and you need to prove that your repentance is real. <laughs> That's pretty interesting. Here's where he says at verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you really repent, I should be able to tell by looking at your life. Don't be, begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham, our father. Like, I'm grandfathered in. <laughs> I'm a churchgoer. I said the words. I went to one. I memorized the verse. I got the card. They got the, the, my mom said I prayed a prayer. Congratulations. But when are you going to repent and, and show that you're, prove that your repentance is really sincere? What evidence can you bring that when you said you repented, you really did repent? That's what he's saying. That's, that's still pretty relevant. I want to say that. I've said it to me a lot this week. I say it to you. Jesus walks in your life and says, here's what I need from you. Here's what you need to think differently about than you've been thinking. And I need to see some evidence that you changed your mind. After all, I am God. I'm the king, Jesus says. The second way to welcome Jesus is one is repent, and the other is prove that your repentance is is real gives some outward evidence there's no birthright citizenship in the kingdom of god all must be spiritually born again 
He told them to show deeds that their repentance was genuine and not present a pedigree of Abraham because Abraham, God says, I can raise up children from, for Abraham from these stones. Prove your repentance is real. And verse 9 says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. In other words, I'm chopping down the trees that don't have fruit on them. People that said they repented, but they don't have fruit for repentance. I'm chopping down those trees right now. Right now, he said. Right now, there's an immediacy there. We're like, oh, judgment's coming on those of you who say, I repented, but there's no evidence or fruit in your life that you really did repent. As in verse 8. I'll show you something interesting in the, in the Bible. When you look in verse 8, it says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. There's a hard Greek word behind that. And it's repeated in verse 10 where the people say, the crowds say, what then shall we do? What would that look like? It's the same Greek word, same word. In, in verse 12, the tax collectors say, what shall we do? It's the same Greek word. In verse 14, the soldiers say, what shall we do? Are you tracking with this? Like if something's repeated three times in the Bible, wake up and pay attention. He says, bear fruit. They go, how do I bear fruit? How do I bear fruit? How do I bear fruit? What should you be asking right now? How do I bear fruit? You say, I repented. Okay, you did. Show me the fruit. Show me. Show me the money. <laughs> Show me. Show me. Let's see. I should be able to see that. There should be hard data. There should be clear evidence. It should be inescapable that you are a repenter, that you think, that you stop thinking like you think about sin. You started thinking like Jesus thinks about sin. This is the beginning of welcoming God to do in your life all the stuff that God says he will do, which is you want, you want that. You want God to do what only God can do in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your church, in the nation. You want that. How do you get that? You have to repent and prove that your repentance was genuine. Yeah. And, and there's immediate, you can repent into the kingdom now. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I think the good fruit's the same word. I'll have to double check on that one. And so the crowds ask him in verse 10, and this is not bad, this is sweet. The crowds, instead of saying, hang the guy, called us a nest of snakes, and we walked all this way and skipped to breakfast to hear him, and yelling at us, and he has bad breath. His hair's weird. You know, his girdle is odd. This guy can't, it's got to be fake. No, that's not what they said. They just go, What then shall we do? God, help us respond that way when God shows up. What do you want? God, what do you want? I'll do whatever you say, I'll give whatever I have. I'll say what you want me to say. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll change. I'll change my mind. This still is the way to welcome a visitation from God. Oh. And we want that. We want the beauty of God showing up and do what only God can do. And he gave practical examples of what repentance looks like, they were, which, which amounted in this case. And they're, uh, i got to imagine these are representative, not exhaustive. You get it? This isn't the only way you can repent. You can repent in a variety of other ways, but here are some representative examples of repentance. And I like what they are because they're like, they're not even directly to God, they're to people. They're interesting. One is basically generosity, one is honesty, one is contentment. Different groups come, right? Verses, verse 10 to, to everyone who has means, not wealthy people, but have two of something. Okay. 
share with others. The crowds ask, what shall we do? In other words, and the Greek word is, how can I bear fruit? How can I prove I've repented? He said, if you have two tunics, share one with somebody who doesn't have any. Whoever has food is to do likewise. It would be like take a box of brand new stuff down to the women's center without doing need to put your name on it. Just, you know, I think you do that. Make sure it's new. Nice. Give some money. Like, don't buy that thing, but help with the eggs for the homeless breakfast. Share. I know you do that. Fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't spend it on you. Buy something for your wife. You notice Lois isn't here today. Get it. Humor there. Anyway, that's like scrape her window and your window, not just your window. That was like the Holy Spirit says to me. I was scraping my window. Got in my car. I was ready to leave. I looked over. I'm like, oh. <laughs> anyway, that's, the Lord says, repent. <laughs> and scrape her window right now. Um, the crowd said, what should we do? And he answered, whoever has two tunics, share with him who has one. I, I had a girl one time who would follow my daughter around and copy her, which I think imitation is the highest form of flattery. My daughter Heidi, this girl would do whatever Heidi did. She would say, where did you get that? And Heidi would oh, tell her, Heidi's actually making a living doing it now. But anyway, here's where I got it. That's kind of humorous. Here's where I got what, what I was, and then the girl would go get it and she would be irritated. And I'd be like, she thinks a lot of you. She wants to be like you. You need to be, you know, nice about that. And she's like, was angry. And, I, and, and she had, a, had an encounter with the Lord. And that girl walked up to me one day at lunchtime. And she says, do you like my blouse? Which was a little weird. Do you like my blouse? I'm like, yeah, that's really nice. She goes, your daughter bought it for me. I'm like, okay, that's fruit meat for repentance right there. What, what, what an exciting life if we begin to say, God, what are you doing, and how can I repent my way into it? How can I change my way into it? Oh, that's so sweet thought. That's what we want for us and our loved ones is repent, think like God thinks, especially about our sin. Tax collectors were even included in this one. Verses 12 and 13, tax collectors came to be baptized <laughs> and said, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to collect. You remember the story about how tax collectors would add to what they were supposed to turn in so that they would make a little profit. And he said, just collect what Rome requires you to collect. Soldiers came and said, what shall we do? And he said to them, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false. Don't use your power to take advantage of people by false accusation. Oh, and be content with your wages. This is really interesting. Wow. Make sure that your repentance is real and it will be evident by the way you treat other people, by these simple acts of justice and righteousness and kindness and generosity. Isn't it interesting? This is evidence of a heart that agrees with God, repentance. I, I, saw my, I love my carriage house. There's a window in my carriage house and, and the paint was peeling and I'm not really good at fixing things, but I really wanted it to look nice. So I got some 
primer. I think there was some primer sitting around. And so I just took that primer one day and I went up on a ladder and I slapped the primer on it and it looked really, really nice. And I was sort of proud of myself. I scraped it a little bit and then I primered it up. And I, I was sort of proud of myself because I stand back and look and it looked white and nice. And I noticed that that summer after a few storms, it started to peel and now it's not very appealing. It's kind of like nasty. Because well, I guess what you're supposed to do, I'm not real sharp, but I guess what you're supposed to do is scrape it really well or blast it or, you know, and, then, and really prep it and then put primer and then wait for it to dry. I think this is how it works. And then you put like a really exterior grade of paint. Is that, that how it's supposed to work? I think that's what it's supposed to look like. And then it, the, my steps, I painted them. Took, as a matter of fact, I primered them. They look great. Take a picture, put them on the internet. Look at my steps. They look wonderful. They don't look wonderful right now. Like, what happened? Because I put primer, a coat of primer, you're supposed to dance laughing at me. Like, you really didn't think that was going to work. And it just, I put primer. I'm like, looks great. It's great to me. Two coats of primer. And then, like, this, this summer, I tried it a little bit different. I put primer and waited. And then I put, and it's, it's, doing, it's doing a little bit better. You, I don't know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you're just an idiot. That how that works. <laughs> That's what John is saying. You know, just put a little religious primer on, a little religious veneer, a little church going, a little kind of like tipping your, you know, hand to God. Yeah, I believe, baptize me. No, no, no. He goes, this needs to go to the core. You got to change what, the way you think and bring me evidence that it's real. Are we saved by grace through faith? Yes. But, great, but genuine salvation is a miracle that changes you. And if you are not changed, you are not saved. Something to think about. Wilfred Grenfell got this. He was a doer. He was a doctor. He was a missionary. He was a teacher. He was a, he was a witness. He went to Labrador, of all places. It's always cold there. <laughs> Almost always cold. And the people that lived there were benighted. They were, they were sick people. They were uneducated people. They were beautiful people, but they didn't have education, and they didn't have money, and they didn't have health care for their children, and they didn't have proper places for orphans. And he began to address all of these things. And when he died, they knighted him in England, and a whole bunch of stuff in Canada is still named Wilfred Grenfell. Colleges and institutions and uh, organ, orphanages and churches are named after the guy because he was a doer. And here's what he said. This is interesting. He believed in preaching. He said, do good works. Don't just preach the gospel. When Christians do things, the world gets interested. When they merely preach sermons, the world goes to sleep. <laughs> ouch. <laughs> Ow, ouch, I thought to myself. Grenfell says, how infinitely more needed are unselfish deeds than merely orthodox words. <laughs> How do we welcome God to do in our life what we want him to do? We repent and we bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. We do things that prove our repentance. The third thing is we focus on Jesus. Look at verse 15. And the people were in expectation. This is kind of cool. The people were in expectation. You know, it's interesting. He just wasn't recruiting people. He's saying, repent. And bring evidence that you're genuinely repentant. And then they said, ah, 
What is it about this? The Spirit of God must have been on John in a powerful way that even after being roughed up like this, the people are like, I, I feel a sense of expectation. And they're like, are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? Are you the deliverer? Is it you? They're all questioning in their hearts concerning John, or that he might be the Christ, the anointed one, Messiah. And John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what's that? Like, well, before you ask that, can we just stop and enjoy that for a minute? <laughs> what, what John just did? I'm baptizing you in water, but somebody's going to come and I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes and he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. Like, what's that? I don't know, but it sounds cool. Doesn't it? Are you with me on this? Whatever that is. Okay, if God, if Jesus is coming and he's going to baptize me in the Holy Spirit and fire, I'm like, it sounds very interesting. What's it mean? Well, obviously, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is when a believer has the Holy Spirit and he's possessed by the Holy Spirit and he's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And this happened at Pentecost. All believers now get the Holy Spirit when they get saved and they're possessed by the Holy Spirit. They're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's what it says in Ephesians 1. That's what Acts is talking about. The scriptures teach that very consistently. And with fire, there were the cloven tongues of fire. There's fire for believers and for unbelievers. Obviously, there's the, there's the fire of the touch of God for the believer. And there's the there's the refining fire for the believer, but then for the, for the unbeliever, there's the fire of judgment. And immediately he's going to refer to that. Immediately he's going to refer to the fire of judgment, cut down, cast into the fire. The one who's coming after me that I'm unworthy to tie his shoes, he is going to bring life or judgment to everyone. This is what it says in verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand. When they would thresh, they would throw up the wheat and then the chaff would blow away and the wheat would fall and separate. He's going to do that with all humanity, separate the wheat from the chaff. God's going to do that thoroughly and perfectly. And some of us who are sitting here today may not be genuine repenters, may not be genuinely saved, may not fall back to the ground and be gathered in like wheat, but may blow away like chaff and go into fiery judgment. That's what Jesus is saying. And this is interesting. With many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. It's really kind of shocking news. Good, good news to the people. You, you might have missed it. You might have said, well, I missed the good part. Oh, they were everyone. Like first he said, be baptized the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, you want to be forgiven of your sin? That's something that you should want God to visit you and do. And scriptures are rich here. All flesh will see the salvation of God. Would you like to experience the deliverance of God? Would you like that for your loved ones? You should probably want, to want that more than a lion's win tonight. We do want the lions to win, for the record. Yeah. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Do you like to have the seal of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit indwells you forever and never goes away? Yes or no? Yeah, sure about that? Like, I'm doing something wrong here. I, I, we, we must have, we, maybe we need longer sermons. 
I'm just kidding you. I love you. When, when it's here. These are wonderful things. And so, anyway, uh, there, there's uh, the focus on Jesus. And then, finally, it's to live with the end in mind. Live with the judgment and the reward in, in mind. Let me, let, me, let me wrap this up. When the kingdom comes, we don't recruit Jesus to our cause. We don't follow to have our will done, but to have his will done. You know, we don't confuse Jesus with the leaders he gave us. We repent of sin. We do good works. We have a prophetic voice. We teach the law. We proclaim good news. We suffer with him for what's right. We prepare for judgment. And then we see the salvation of God. What should we learn from this? Let me, let me just share something we should learn. God's, as God's messengers, we should bring the word of God and not our own message. That's what John did. As God's messengers, we should promote him and not us. That's what John did. As God's agents, we don't recruit God to join our cause. I kind of made that point. But we repent into the kingdom and yield ourselves to his will and his kingdom, and we join his cause. He doesn't endorse our will. We say, your will be done. Your kingdom come. Like my friend said, we don't follow Jesus to get where we're going. We follow Jesus to get where he's going. And we do that by repenting, by seeing sin the way he sees it. And if you ever want just a little refreshment, and you ever feel that way, like, man, I need a little pick-me-up, I need a little refreshment, I need a little spark, I need a little something-something, what would it be? You're going to hate it, you didn't get it. Repent! <laughs> repent of something. Find something to repent of. Shouldn't be that hard. You know, just repent of something. And then what happens to... I tell you, there is, does this sound familiar to you? I tell you, there is joy among the angels in heaven over one sinner who comes to repentance. I'll be, I'll be that guy. Okay. I'll repent. God, I'm sorry. I didn't treat my wife the way you want me to treat my wife. Joy in the presence of the angels in heaven. God, I'm sorry. I care more about my hobby than I do about my neighbor's salvation. Joy in the presence of the angels in heaven, you repented, you thought the way he did. It's so sweet. We don't recruit people with features and benefits of being a Christian, but we teach the law and we preach the gospel and we boldly call people to repentance. We seize the kingdom immediately when we repent and believe. God's kingdom is immediately available. That's what happened in the Hebrides revivals. That's what happened in the Welsh revival. That's what happened in the Great Awakening. That's what happened in Rive Junction not too many years ago. I've junction. You know where that is? Regular folk right here. Imagine that. Maybe some of you were part of that. And so we want to be perpetual repenters, always laboring to see sin the way God does, change our mind, keep changing our mind. We don't protest our innocence. We don't plead our merit. We admit our need. We confess our sin. We throw ourselves on the loving kindness and the mercy of the Lord. We repent, and we prove our repentance by bearing fruit that's appropriate to repentance, and we focus on Jesus, not on his servants, not on our favorite you know, preacher or Christian leader, but on Jesus. Those other guys are pointing to Jesus. Everything's about him. And we think about, we always keep the end in mind. The end to end, not just the end like profit and business, or maybe you have a thing in your life that you didn't like. Probably most of you do. You just don't, didn't like it. Somebody treats you bad. Maybe it's a, a misalignment in relationships that just won't go away and it breaks your heart. Or maybe it's a trouble that you just feel like is beyond you. And you wonder, why? God, here's what I want to lovingly suggest to you. Whatever that is, 
That thing should be your motivation to just think the way God thinks about everything. Like just re- start with repenting and then bring forth fruit, me for repentance, and then focus on Jesus and then think about the end, l- live with the end in mind because God's message is good news and it's good news for all people. All people can see the salvation of the Lord. And God's people may suffer. We're going to get into that next week. We'll get into that next week. But we want to pray now. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask 